we have this common problem at our house. It's, it's almost become like a running joke. Uh, me or one of the kids will be looking for something, you know, my keys, my phone, a book, the mustard, you know, whatever it is, and we'll be, we'll be looking. We can even be looking in the place where the item is. And for whatever reason, we just can't seem to find it. And so we call Steph, and Steph comes over, and in less than 10 seconds, she grabs the item, and she just looks at us and says, really? But that's just how it goes. You know, we, we, we can be looking for something, and for whatever reason, even the thing we're looking for, we just don't seem to see it, even when it's right in front of us. You know, sometimes the same is true in life, right? Where, where you're looking for something, but something else presents itself that, you know, you just, you just didn't see. Several years ago, I was uh, asked if I could go over to Sierra Leone, Africa, many of you know this, and just go over there and help train some local pastors over there, and, and so I was looking to just go one time and hopefully encourage these guys. They had given me some topics they wanted me to teach on, and I had studied those topics well. I mean, I was ready to get over there, and I was ready to train at a seminary level and just go through all the details of, and all the ramifications and all the different beliefs on these different topics. And that's what I was looking to do, just go over there and, and, and teach well and hopefully be an encouragement and then, and then come back. We'll get over there and I soon discovered these pastors did not need a seminary level education classroom lecture. They, they just needed someone who would open the scriptures with them and explain the Bible to them. And they didn't need it for one time. They, they didn't need me just there for like a week to do this. They needed this ongoing thing. So as many of you know, I've, there's two pastors there now. I'm part of a team and two pastors every single week. I'm on the phone with them and I'm just explaining the scripture to them so that when they preach it on Sunday morning, they know it and they're ready. They're ready to teach it. And been over there several times now. Well, got a call the other, uh, just a few days ago, not too long ago now, and the day after Thanksgiving, you know, it was the last Friday of the month. And the last Friday of the month, every last Friday of the month, they have an all-night prayer service. And so this particular Friday night, that, that morning, one of my pastor friends over there, Pastor Pius, he and his wife Mary, they had a baby at 2.35 Friday morning. Then that Friday night, Pastor Pius went to the all-night prayer service. And he was there all night long praying. And he also told me about their baby that they had. And, you know, there, when you, when you name a child, it's not like here where you just kind of put it, you fill out some paperwork at, a, at the hospital and that's the name of the child. There, you, you have like a whole naming service at church, okay? It's, it's a celebration where the whole church gets to celebrate the name of this child, the name that you've chosen to give this child. And so this morning... They're celebrating, they'd celebrated already, the, the name of this child that they, they decided to, to name the child. And so they had a baby girl, and Pastor Pius told me, because of the impact that you've had in my life and my ministry, my wife and I, we have chosen to name the child Stephanie Nicole after your wife. And so, I mean, you know how humbling that is and how honoring that is. And based on the pronunciation of Stephanie Nicole, I'm pretty certain that she's the only Stephanie Nicole in all of Sierra Leone. But, but you know, I was just looking to go over there and teach a class, you know, do, do a little work, hopefully be an encouragement. Had no idea the relationships, the friendships that would be made and the impact that could be had. 
it all depends on what you're looking for, right? And sometimes when you come to church, same thing happens. You know, you come to church, people come to church for a variety of reasons. You're looking to make some good friends. You're looking for a, a place that will be a positive influence on your kids. You're looking just to, to do the right thing, to please God, to fulfill the contract, maybe to earn some good karma, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the case may be. And you think you're just coming to church. And then hopefully you get here and you realize, well, I don't just come to church. I actually am the church. We are the church. It's not something you go to. It's who we are. And then, and then as you're here, you realize, okay, I, I've got to grow. The church is, is, is made to equip me to be a disciple maker. And so we go through the chairs of discipleship and just these chairs of spiritual maturity and, and where you're at. And so when you start off in chair one, if you're not even in chair one yet, someone who doesn't know Jesus, what do they need most in life? And the thing they need most in life is to be able to connect with God, and we do that through Jesus Christ. And once you have that relationship with Jesus, what then do you need most? To connect with the family of God. The author of Hebrews says, do not give up meeting together, right? There's a lot of important things that we should be doing, you know, reading our Bible, quiet time, prayer, all these things. But the author of Hebrews says, whatever you do, don't forsake meeting together as the family of God. It's that important. So what do you need most as you're starting off? You need to connect with God and you need to connect with the family of God. And once you do that, once, once that's a normal rhythm of your life, then what do you need most? We well, need to grow. And that's chair two. It's this, it's this step of growth. And, and you grow by hopping into an impact group, by finding an opportunity in the church to, to use and develop your spiritual gifts. And you, you do that by reading your Bible, by praying and the spiritual disciplines. But you learn this habit of being obedient and spending time with God. And once you've done that, once you're in this step of, of growth, then the thing you need most, and this is kind of the big, the big gap here, is to cross the cultural divide and then to serve the culture and to serve community. Serving is not here at church. That's not your ministry. This is just developing your spiritual gifts. That's chair two. Chair three is taking what you have, taking what you've developed, and then going and impacting the culture, going and sharing Jesus and impacting people. And, you know, just this week, our second graders over at CCA, they, they went to a local public school, and they just they read a book, and they, they began just to share Jesus with people and in their peers in a public school. And so we're training them, right, you know, even at a young age to, hey, faith is something that we get to take. This is, this is what a Christian does, is that we go and we impact the world for Jesus. And then once you're doing that, once this is a normal rhythm of life where I'm sharing Jesus and I'm impacting people, then what do you need most? And that's chair four. It's, a, it's the chair of discipleship to, to show other people this is how you do it. This is how you go, and this is how you make disciples. You take somebody with you, and, and you say, okay, here, here's how I'm discipling someone. Here's what I'm doing. Here's how I'm engaging the culture, and you're training them then to be a disciple maker. But this is what we're all called to be. We're all called to go and make disciples, make disciples who make disciples. And so that, that's what it's all about. See, we can come to church looking for one thing, and then we find out what God has for us is so much more than that. But sometimes we miss it because we're looking for the wrong things. We're not the only ones. So we'll see in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark 6, 
1 through 6. We see these people who, they live in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, and they're just looking at Jesus as a, as a carpenter. They don't have room in their hearts to, to think that perhaps Jesus could be someone more. And when Jesus began to preach and to teach, they reject him because they couldn't believe that he could be the Messiah, that he could be the promised one. He wasn't what they were looking for. And oh, sometimes we say, oh, if I were there, if I were there, I would stand up and I would have been the one in the back to say, hey, wake up. Don't you see? This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one we've been waiting for. I would have said that. Well, maybe, but it all depends on what you were looking for. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, says, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. See, the crowds, they were amazed at his teaching. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He was amazed. You almost get the sense that he was surprised. And you think of Jesus, this Jesus, God the Son, the Logos, the Word made flesh that John tells us about, how in the beginning was God and the Word was with God and the Word was God and how through this Word, through this Logos, everything that was made was made through him. And you would think that there would have been a lot of things in Jesus' experience that he would have been amazed by. You know, back at creation, when the galaxies were formed, you, you would think that Jesus would have been amazed by that. You, you would think that as, uh, as the Hebrew children were led out of Egyptian captivity and slavery and how God parted the Red Sea and they were able to walk through on dry ground, that Jesus would have been amazed by that. But here in his own hometown of Nazareth, probably not more than a few steps from his carpentry shop where he learned all those skills, Jesus is amazed. He's amazed at his own people, the people he grew up around, the people who should know him best, because they won't give him a chance to work because of their unbelief. Now, we know that Jesus' ministry was hidden, right, as he was growing up, that, that God held him from public presentation until Jesus was about the age of 30. Um, but Jesus, he still grew up around these people. He knew their hearts. He knew, he, knew, he knew their struggles. He knew their hurts. He knew their brokenness. And you would think that at times, as Jesus knows these people and he sees these people, that perhaps he said to the Father, God, as soon as you give me the opportunity... As soon as you give me permission, I want to reach into their lives. I want to heal that brokenness. I want to heal those hurts. 
And now the opportunity arises. Now the moment comes. And they won't let him. And we, we have accounts of people running to Jesus just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, just hoping to see Jesus. We have accounts of people running to Jesus and just hoping just to touch the edge of his garment. We have accounts of, of, of friends who tear the roof off of a home so they can lower their sick friend down into the presence of Jesus. They'll do anything to get in front of Jesus. They, they, they just want to be in Jesus' presence for Jesus to touch them. But the people who know him best, they draw back. They don't reach for him. They push him away. And he's amazed. He's amazed at their lack of faith, at their unbelief. You know, over and over again in the prophets, you see God saying, why won't you trust me? Why won't you believe in me? I'm the God who called you out of Egypt. I'm the God who protected you from Pharaoh's army. I'm the God who led you out of Egypt across the Red Sea. I'm the God who protected you. I'm the God who fed you manna in the middle of nowhere. I'm the God who gave you water from the rock. And now you don't believe me? You're the ones who are supposed to know me best. And now Jesus, in this moment, in his own hometown of Nazareth, Jesus is experiencing the exact same thing for himself. And he's amazed. Because the people that should have known him best simply refuse to let him work. And he is stunned, and he marvels at what happens. You know, it's not the only time in the Gospels that it tells us that Jesus was amazed. Luke tells us in the, in the seventh chapter of his gospel about a, a Roman centurion, a, a military officer, a Gentile, a pagan, who sends word to Jesus. He sends messengers ahead to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I had this servant, and he's sick. He's, he's, he's dying here. Can you come help? And the servants, they rush to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you got to come. This is a good guy. He's a faithful guy. He loves Israel. He's helped build a synagogue. He's really good. If you could come and help, this would be great. Jesus, you should do it. And so Jesus leaves with them, and he's on his way to the centurion's house. And the centurion sends more messengers. And these messengers go to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, the, the centurion wants you to know that he is not worthy to have you come under his roof. But he also knows authority, and he recognizes authority, and he knows that you have authority because he himself is a man of authority, and he knows that if he just says the word go, his soldiers will go. And if he just says the word come, his soldiers will come. And he respects the authority that you have, and if you will just say the word, he understands that his servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed that this man, that this Roman, this Gentile, he has this kind of openness, this kind of recognition, that he would grant this kind of permission for Jesus to work. And yet the people who know him best, they don't recognize his authority. They don't trust his word. Did, did you see what they said? Who is this guy? We, we know him. This guy grew up around here. We, we've seen him since he was a boy. Listen to him. He, he talks like he knows what he's talking about. He talks with all this wisdom. 
And it stuns them because no one else speaks that way. And so they, they understand, okay, he has some wisdom. He knows a thing or two about life and how to live. We, we recognize that. And they also notice, oh, and he's done some miracles. We recognize that. Well, we can see that he, he's done some stuff and that he talks with wisdom. But we're not going to listen to him. We're not going to grant him authority in our lives. We don't have room for that. You know, how many of you have ever said, if God just does one miracle, you know, if, if he were just to do one miracle in my life, I mean, I would believe forever. I would never doubt again if I could just see one miracle. You know, we read about Elijah calling down the fire on Mount Carmel. Remember the story? And Elijah's up there. And we think, oh man, if we could have been there, we could have seen Elijah do that. And he calls down the fire, and then everything gets burned up, right? The wood, the stones, the dust, everything, whoosh, ablaze. And we think, man, I don't even need God to do that. If he would just light a candle while I was praying, you know, that would be good. I don't, I don't need the whole fire. If he could just flick a wick, I'd, I'd believe. Never doubt again, just an itty-bitty miracle, and, and I'd be good. But you won't, because you'll find some other way to explain it. You'll, you'll find some other way to, to rationalize it, some other way to frame it. You'll find some excuse so that you don't have to give Jesus authority over all of your life. See, that's the issue, isn't it? Did you see what he said next? What they said next? He said, oh, we, we know that you're a working man that you're a carpenter. <laughs> Say, your, your shop's right around the corner. We, we know your work. Look at your hands, Jesus. Look how callous they are. You're a working man. You're, you're a carpenter. Who do you think you are saying all these things? We've seen the things that you've built. I've got a table in my house that you built, Jesus. The cabinets in my kitchen came from your shop. And now you're here. You're saying all this. You're doing all this. We know who you are. You're Mary's boy. Do you see what they just did to him right there? Did you catch that? How are men in the Bible introduced? Right. This is Isaac, son of Abraham. This is Joseph, son of Jacob. This is Joshua, son of Nun. Do you see what they're saying? We know your story, Jesus. We know there's something funny about the way you were born. We may be from Nazareth, but we know how to count to nine. We know Joseph's not your dad. You don't look anything like him. You are illegitimate. So we don't have to give you authority. We know your brothers and your sisters. You're not like them. You're a little different than they are. You are an illegitimate son. So we don't have to give you authority in our lives. You see that? And we do the same thing today. We try to make Jesus just human. Simply human. We try to bring him down. Oh, during this time of the year... This is the time of the year where the shops come out and the movies come out and all this stuff about some lost gospel that's been discovered again. 
You know, and they, they tell these stories. People make a big deal of it. That, that Jesus, you know, he was not really born in Bethlehem. He didn't really die on the cross. He married Mary Magdalene, and they, they moved to the south of France or something like that. And that's been published, you know. That's, that's, I'm not making that up. They publish this stuff, and they, they do movies on this thing. And they'll tell you, oh, Jesus didn't really claim to be the Christ at all. He didn't really claim to be the Son of God at all. And they drag this stuff up, and there will be this announcement. Here's the lost gospel. Understand this. The church did not lose these gospels. We threw them away. And if we'd have known that they'd have been digging around in the dumpster, we'd have burned them up. This gospel of Thomas that, that often comes out this time of the year, we know it's a false gospel. The early church writers, they wrote about it. It was written some 200 years after the life and ministry of Jesus. It wasn't written by Thomas at all. And it makes all kind of crazy claims. But the church dismisses it because they know this was not an eyewitness account. This is a false writer making up stuff. And it proves what? Oh, they're trying to prove that Jesus is not the Son of God that he's not the Messiah, not the promised one, because if Jesus is, then you have to let everything go to make room for him. Because that's what a relationship costs. If Jesus is here, you can't just say, well, there's the Messiah, and go home like nothing else happened. No, no, if this is the Jesus, the true Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, then that causes a response. Because if Jesus is here, Jesus is Lord over everything. But we try to do what the people of Nazareth did. Just bring him down a little. Make him less divine. Make him just human, just like us. Because if we can keep him limited then he doesn't have total authority, total say. And we look at it and we say, you know, Jesus gets us. And I'm glad he does. I'm glad we serve a Lord who can sympathize with us. That, that when I pray, I don't, I don't have to explain everything because Jesus just gets me, you know? He just understands. He knows what it is to be human. And I love that about Jesus. But please understand this, sympathy is overrated, okay? Yes, when you're hurting, it is nice to have someone who can listen. It's, it's nice to have someone who's there. That, that is good, someone just to come alongside you. That helps some. And I am so thankful that Jesus knows how I feel, that he understands, that I don't have to explain everything, that he just gets it. But I need more than that from a Savior, I need a Savior who can reach into that and heal that brokenness. I need a Savior who can take what is broken and who can redeem it. I, can, I need a Savior who can take what is lost and bring it back. I need one who can take what is dead and make it alive again. That's the kind of Savior I need. And we all need. The next uh, statement in Mark in, in this paragraph is, is interesting. There's that line that Jesus could do no mighty work there. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't have the ability. He's God. He, he could override it, you know. He could just tap into that divinity. He, he could override it. He has that authority. 
But the people said no to him. The people rejected him. And he respected that. That they shut the door on what he could do, and he didn't just kick it in. Jesus asked for the invitation. Jesus implores for the invitation. Jesus came from heaven all the way to earth for the invitation. He wants to work. He wants to do something different in your life with this moment. And that's what faith is. It's that openness, that willingness to cede everything to God. Say, I'm trusting you with all of my life. I'm making room for everything, that you can do something different in me. That you have this plan for my life and you have the power to execute it. And I will set everything aside for Jesus because you set everything aside for a relationship. How much room needs to be available in your inn? All of it. Anything less is a contract, not a relationship. So many people, they'll go to Bible-believing churches today And they'll hear wonderful accounts of how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, how Jesus walked on the water, how Jesus fed the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, how Jesus calmed the storms and healed the sick, and how he did all this. And you'll ask, do you believe that Jesus walked on water? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus could feed the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus could heal the sick and raise the dead? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus can heal your marriage? Oh, I don't know, Steve. My, my marriage is pretty bad off. You, you, you don't know what's gone on here. The Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead he doesn't come to your marriage and say, oh, that's, that's, that's too much for me. <laughs> you've been wounded. You've been hurt. You've been betrayed. You've had kids, family members who you just love deeply, and you, and you see them stray away, leave the faith. You got whatever emotion going on. Maybe, maybe, maybe you got this anger that's gone from hot to cold. You've got this bitterness that just infects life because you have this stuff that's happened. And you feel like you can't be happy unless that person who hurts you suffers a little bit. You feel like you can't have any kind of joy unless that person who is strayed away comes back home to the faith. And someone will ask, do you believe Jesus healed the sick? Yes, I believe. Do you believe that he can restore the joy of your salvation? Oh, I don't know. I I don't think so. You see how that happens? You don't have room for God to do what only he can do. Someone will ask, did you believe that Jesus could use that hot-tempered, foul-mouthed fisherman Peter to go and just share Jesus, impact people, start churches, be this incredible evangelist, make disciples, train others who can make disciples? Yeah, yeah, I think he can. I think he did. Do you believe Jesus can use you to go make disciples who make disciples? 
oh, I, I don't know if Jesus really called me to that. I, I, I don't really know if that's my calling. But it is. That, that, that's what he saved you for. We'll stand in a few minutes and we'll sing our closing song and then we'll go home. And here's the question. Is there anything God wants to do in your life that you just don't believe he can? That you're just not giving him the invitation to do? What is it that he wants to change in your life that you, that you won't give him permission for because you're hanging on to something? Maybe, maybe it's just unbelief. Maybe, maybe you just have kind of lost faith that he can really touch this after this many years, this much time. What, what is the next chair that you need to move into in your, in your spiritual growth to, to look more like Jesus, to, to be the disciple maker that he's called you to be? Now, as Jesus brought you here this morning, as he's wooed you into his presence, he's, he's created this hunger. I mean, out of all the places that you could be this Sunday morning, you chose to be here. To be in this place, we can worship together with all the saints the goodness of our God and hear his word proclaimed so that our eyes and our hearts could be opened to the possibility that maybe today God wants to do something more in your life. That maybe today you don't have to walk out of here the same way that you walked in. What is it that if you don't believe, what is it that would be left undone what miracle would be left ungiven because you didn't have the faith to ask? These people knew the scriptures, you know. These people from Nazareth, they, they knew the scriptures. They, they knew how in Isaiah chapter 11, God promised from the stump of Jesse will come this new shoot of life from the stump. You all know about stumps, right? There's a lot of agriculture in this area, and you're planting a garden, you're planting some crops or whatever, and there's this stump that for whatever reason, you just can't get up. It seems like God planted this tree there from creation. We took the tree down, but the stump, we just can't get up. So what do you do? You plant around it, right? You got to go around it. You just can't, you can't plant on a stump. Nothing grows out of a stump. I mean, if somebody calls you a stump, that's not a compliment, Right? And you're stubborn, immovable. We got to go around you if we want to get something done. There's no life. We don't expect any life coming out of you. You know, that stump is that place that you go and you sit and you remember what used to be. You sit on that stump and you, you remember how, oh, this, this used to be that big tree that provided all this shade. You sit on that stump and you remember, oh, this used to be that tree house that the kids played in. No, it's just a stump. That stump. That, that place where you just remember the way things used to be, where you don't expect any life coming out of that. From that place, God said, he's going to bring life. From the stump, we'll shoot this new life. From that very place, God says, I will start a new thing. Jesus is coming there. From that stump in your heart, that you think, I don't know that God can work there. I don't, know, I don't know if he can do that. I don't know if he could use me that way. From that place, if you will only give him the chance, if you only have the faith to believe, from that place, God will work. 
Mark closes this section and he says that the only thing Jesus could do in Nazareth was heal a few sick people. He just discounts it, you know? Did you see that? He just blows it off. Can you imagine what would happen if word got out? Hey, last week at Central, a few sick people got healed. I mean, this place would be packed next week. Mark just discounts it. What happened in Nazareth? Ah, oh, nothing. A couple sick people got healed, that's all. Nothing really happened. Why? Because Jesus wanted to do so much more. But they wouldn't give him the chance. They didn't believe. So this morning, if Mark were to write about us, how would, how would he close out that passage? But what would he say about our time together, you and me, us, here this morning? How does Mark end that story? Would there be this testimony of how the risen Christ worked through our lives and the things that were done and the disciples who were made and how we trained other disciples to go and make disciples? Or would he write that Jesus was amazed that the people who know him best come and they gather and they sing songs and they open up his word? But they leave unchanged, not believing that he could really do any more. I don't know what you were looking for when you walked in here this morning. But what is it among the people who should know God best that Jesus wants to do with you now? What is it that he would change? What is it that he would heal? What part of your life does he want to reach into and make you look more like him? What would be different if you just, just had the room to believe more, to trust more, if you just could give him the chance? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus for us. And God, forgive us for our unbelief. We pray you would not be amazed by the fact that it, the people who should know you best don't believe, but that you would be amazed by our faith. Because we're running for a glimpse of you. We're giving you permission to do, to have authority in all of our life, that you would conform us into the image of your son, that we would be the disciple makers you've called us to be. God, please don't satisfy our hearts with anything less. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.